that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your, in your sight, O Lord, my God and my Redeemer. Amen. Have a seat, please. Thank you very much. topic I'm preaching on today is, again, coinciding with some of the study uh, that some folks are doing this summer. And my topic is, is growing in maturity and becoming gentle protectors. I want to state up front that being a gen uh, gentle protector is a trait planted in our being. Or more simply put, it's a product of being created in God's image. It is part of how we've been knit together. Being a gentle protector surfaces through the aspirations of all who desire that his kingdom come as it is in heaven. And yet, it is not something we man manufacture. <clears throat> Living as gentle protectors is God's image emerging through us as we grow in him. It is organic. It's like planting a seed. If we do a modicum of care for the seeds in our garden that are planted in our baptism, we will do what God intended to preserve and resisting evil, to proclaim the word by example, uh, by word and example, uh, the good news, to seek and serve Christ in all persons, and to strive for justice among all people. I hope that you will see my comments through the lens of our Exodus reading today where God says, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, I know their sufferings, and have come down to deliver them. This is the linchpin of emerging maturity and being a gentle protector. We come through a point where we have faith that God sees us, he empathizes and acknowledges our difficulties, and he delivers us. That's the root of that, of that Exodus reading. The clearest evidence of a person or a community's maturity is its capacity to negotiate the needs of others and the needs of self in a way that allows uh, both to be authentic and truthful and also in an environment that allows for healthy shame and real growth. All right, a word about shame. We've been talking a lot about this over the last couple of months. It gets a really bad rap. So why do we keep talking about it? Because it might be one of the most misunderstood parts of our personal development. We need to have clarity on this issue because it is such a critical component of healthy engagement. We're being wrongly taught in popular culture that all shame is bad. And more specifically, that shame is generally delivered by unhealthy people. It's a dangerous lie. It's close to the truth, but it's a dangerous lie. We've been learning in our life model material that shame is one of the responses that's hardwired in a brain. It's a default response. Healthy shame may be one of the keys to, to learning of any kind. Have, having a twinge of conscience when we're watching our third ball game in a week when we need to be preparing a sermon, may actually be a sign of our emotional health and respect for the community. That may or may not be autobiographical. <clears throat> and the Brewers have taken two from the Cubs uh, in a row. So, yeah, I'm just saying. To many of us, the need for healthy shame does not sound like good news, but it is. If we believe that God knit us together in the womb, as it says in Psalm 139, then it is good news. A psychologist once said, emotional freedom involves understanding the difference between healthy and unhealthy shame. So how do we know which is which? We're not all psychologists. 
This is one of the ways that I think about this. Shame should guide us, not crush us. It should point us to correction, not suspicion, anger, or depression. The deepest learning of how to negotiate these feelings comes by being part of a healthy community or a healthy family, by seeing others more mature than us, experiencing healthy shame in productive ways. One of the telltale signs of our cultural immaturity is that we've lost our ability to distinguish between healthy and unhealthy shame. The difference between them is also something we generally do not learn on our own. The difference, the, this is particularly challenging news uh, to us adults here. Hearing shame messages is part of every childhood journey. It's expected. It is part of our tried and true anthropological development. However, most adults do not like being corrected, gently or otherwise. If interpreted improperly, it'll make us feel like children. It'll make us feel, you know, like, like uh, we're just, we're being, we're being attacked, okay? It's also sometimes interpreted as a lack of trust or an attack on our competence. I like picking on Mary during my sermons. Where are you? There you are. Mary, how many times have you been in a lesson a piano lesson. For those of you who don't know Mary, Mary's a graduate student, a uh, piano student at UWM, where you've worked out a phrase and it's just how you want it. You, you, you've really thought this through and your teacher goes, I don't like it. How does that feel when your teacher does that? It can be frustrating. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I, I had it all worked out and now I'm being judged. But you know, I bet you've learned how to take that criticism and turn it into better playing. Right? Obviously. <laughs> we witness it every Sunday. It's, it's, it's a joy to hear. For people who are stuck in this particular immaturity, they generally have problems and difficulties in work and sustaining relationships. My wife used to teach piano, and some of whom were adults. And one of the most interesting things about adults is they would come to this thinking they would be good in a hurry. I'm smart. I'm a doctor. Why can't I learn how to play the piano? Or why am I not learning it now? What's the problem here? They get frustrated. They, they can't figure out why they're not getting better faster. Matter of fact, their kids may even be progressing faster than they are. They feel shame. They feel incompetence. And they're not quite sure how to interpret that moving forward. Uh, and so I just want to say this, that it hits on all the mythologies about our confidence and our ability to maintain our confidence. It's not always rooted in reality. And so there's a reality that God brings to us sometimes when we learn new skills or we hear a challenging word that may challenge our mythologies, may challenge our, our inner understanding of who we are or how the world is around us. This is part of how communities mature as a group. We don't mature as individuals. We cannot be a mature individual or a mature community or any real help to those around us if we cannot learn from our shame as an ongoing part of a healthy life. Personal responsibility and taking our place as part of a healthy community is contingent upon how we process and grow from healthy shame. Healthy shame is how we learn proper boundaries in our homes and even in our societies. The absence of these traits raises our anxiety and also makes it impossible to trust God for us. Experiencing and processing healthy shame is critical for our personal development and critical to our being able to trust our Creator Unfortunately, our well-being is also impacted by unresolved and, uh, difficulties related to lingering issues of unhealthy shame. So in some situations, the damage is so profound that professional help is the only path out. 
we must learn always to remember that we are works in progress. No matter where we are in the spectrum, we are always, always works in progress. Another term we've been throwing around a lot is maturity. And at least from, from where I'm coming from uh, right now, how I define maturity, maturity means we're being able, we are able to be the person God created us to be. That means we are able to hear from God. We're able to hear from the scripture and we're able to hear from each other. Hear what? <laughs> the truth about ourselves. Only then can we have the insight to be authentic, truthful, courageous, and gentle. Some of the signs of unresolved damage is not being able to be our true selves or projecting what we hope people will want to see, being deceptive or evasive or fearful or either too aggressive or too passive. One of the missing pieces in our generation is a shockingly rare number of elders in our social circles and in our churches. Congregations need to be a people who allow themselves to grow in maturity and be mentored and shaped by people who aspire to good community. In other words, we need an outward impulse. Church is just not for me. It's a vehicle for sharing the saving grace you've experienced in the world. Our service ends every week with go in peace to love and serve the Lord or the other response. Go into the world rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Might be helpful to take a moment to reflect, does that, does that describe your week? As the old proverb goes, it takes a village to raise a child. But not just anyone in the village. The scripture teaches, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. No one, you're not being encouraged necessarily to take refuge in, in everyone around you, but to reach up to, to the mature among us. So if we are to overcome, but if we are overcome with shame, whenever we know, oh, I'm sorry, I got all turned around there. We need to be able to process this shame or we're going to end up being stuck in kind of a self-imposed life of, of unrealistic expectations for ourselves. Scripture also says, seek and you shall find. And the psalmist says, I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. And Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. This is really a life posture that we need to kind of take on. Our posture and life focus should be on what God is doing. Gentle protectors understand that. In all, God is present. Not in the abstract, but in spirit and truth. Not just in an academic way in our head, but we know this in our heart. In our relational skills textbook, it says, God's family grows as his people develop maturity and become gentle protectors. As we mature, we develop resiliency. We are more able to be ourselves in increasingly complex situations. Some of these emotional tasks must be con accomplished in community if we are to be as mature as our chronological age. One of my favorite movies is called Lars and the Real Girl. Have you seen that movie? It's a fascinating movie. <clears throat> we watched it as part of our group last week as, as we uh, kind of talked. It, it, it's it's an, a real object lesson about how we learn in community. In life, people around us model the maturity that we go into, and that's why it's so important that we take our own maturity seriously. We have an impact around us, whether it's intended or not. In 1 Corinthians, we hear, when I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. 
In Lars, we were presented with a story of a man who has experienced a profound trauma and how his family struggles to cope with that trauma and pain. Lars's mother dies in childbirth. His dad is so depressed that he can't properly care for his boys. The older of the two boys is so challenged by his father's depression that he leaves home as soon as he can get out. And Lars, the youngest, is left alone with a father with a broken heart who just can't give him what he needs. Lars also, one of the things that really challenges him, he's alone to process why his mother died and how he's connected to this. He's just a little boy. He doesn't know what happened. He only knows that his mother died and he's a part of it. There's some empathy certainly that goes on, but we just might say even life is hard. You know, you've got to figure out and get through things. But this young man did not get what he needed from his dad. Maybe his dad couldn't give it to him. What he needed from the community was just not being, not being offered. The eldest son was left to fend for himself, and he was just a teenager himself. So as soon as he gets an opportunity, he leaves. The family appears to be left on their own. The movie fast-forwards to uh, uh, several years later, and the eldest brother moves back home into his father's house. The younger brother moves into the family garage. The crux is that Lars is triggered. His sister-in-law is pregnant. And for Lars, pregnancy and birth and fatality are intimately connected. He's confronted immediately with his fear. He's afraid to get too close to her because what happens if she dies? His life will just be thrown into a tizzy again, and he and his brother will be alone to struggle with the difficulties. And they'll have to live that horrifying truth all over again. As her pregnancy progresses, he finds himself more and more unable to deal with the future possibilities. The majority of the remainder of the movie is about how this small town comes together to help everyone grow up a little, to increase in maturity and compassion. People learn from each other and rally around Lars and his family. It's hard, it's complicated, it's certainly weird, and it takes a community commitment, it takes patience and kindness. Lars is allowed in his very peculiar way to learn more about who he is by being with others who deal with him tenderly and patiently. The whole town becomes gentle protectors. With the help of the three elders, the pastor, the church matriarch, and a widowed psychologist, they lead an entire town on a journey towards maturity and healing, self-awareness and compassion. And little by little, they learn to care for one another. One of the most poignant moments in the entire movie is one of the best examples of healthy shame I've ever seen uh, in literature. The climax of Lars's emotional crisis happens when Lars cries out angrily to his sister-in-law that no one actually cares about me. The real truth is that Lars is not able to negotiate his needs and the needs of his girlfriend simultaneously. He's never learned that skill, not from his dysfunctional brother or his dysfunctional father. So he lashes out in in a rant of self-pity. After listening to the woe is me and no one cares about me rant, his sister-in-law challenges him and points out that what everybody has done, the whole community's rallied around him, but he can't see it. It's painfully obvious that Lars is in a tough spot, but the sister-in-law chooses the truth. It would have been very easy for her to just give him a hug and say, Lars, it's gonna be okay. It's going to be okay. But she doesn't. She says, Lars, the entire town 
has rallied around you. We are here for you. You need to see this. At that moment, the rubber is hitting the road. This really took courage. It was a courageous conversation for sure. And so the, the uh, whole uh, movie begins to change because she told the truth and she reminded Lars how Bianca, his girlfriend, had gotten hired at the local store. She was invited to parties, accepted to ladies, the ladies' guild, and even elected to the school board. You have to see the movie to understand why that's really bizarre. <clears throat> truth was that the whole town was supporting his needs and her needs, even though she was brand new to the community. Nothing could have been farther from Lars's perception of truth. He was believing a lie, and she confronted it. This was the fulcrum, the tipping point. After this, everything begins to tilt towards healing and a resolving of the distortions and a strong move towards the truth of who they all are, the whole community, God's reality. God's view of them as individuals. The whole town begins to learn how to become gentle protectors, guided by the wisdom of the elders in their community, and not just by their words, but by their lives and how they lived. Like Jesus and the apostles, they modeled the behavior of compassion, gentleness, and healthy shame. Jesus, the ultimate model for a gentle protector, tells his apostles in John 8, if you abide in me and my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Lars needed this word from his sister-in-law. Without it, he may have gone on his self-absorbed delusion and missed the whole opportunity to grow. He needed to hear the truth. It was hard, but it was a gift. When our brains are well-trained to receive correction, pain, joy, humor, and, challenge our, uh, and, and the other challenges of life, when our capacity is high, we tend not to be triggered in the same way. Lars was becoming a new man. Gentle protectors are desperately needed. Boy, just look at our current political rhetoric. Gentle protectors, as, as psychologist Jordan Peterson says, have the ability to bring the divine force of hope to bear on the world. I want to say that again. It's a powerful line for me. Gentle protectors have the ability to bring the divine force of hope to bear on the world. It sounds almost like a summation of the mission of what God is calling us to. Elders are able to see things, uh, set, help set things right when things go awry. And through these elders, this town is transformed. Almost like in the gospel, when the children were brought that Jesus might lay hands on them, the disciples try and shoo them away. It's like, hey, we're going to do a sermon here. We're going to hear a great teaching. Can you just go sit down? And Jesus says, no, let the children come to me. For such is the kingdom of God. He brings them to him. He blesses them. He takes time with them. I wish I could have seen this. I wonder how much time it took. I wonder how much adult squirming there was as they were waiting for the real thing to happen while Jesus was blessing the children, which for him appeared to be the real thing. Jesus is modeling what it means to be a gentle protector. And, and I think it's, it's a wonderful lesson for us as well. We can also see this behavior modeled in the world. Father Eric said last week that it's some of our most turbulent times that learning can be most profound. And many of us know this to be true. I'm going to ask a friend and colleague of mine to come and join me for a moment. His name is Carl Fields. And uh, I met Carl hmm, three years ago. Is it three, Carl? About three years. Um, and I'm going to ask Carl to talk a little bit uh, about his story and the learning that he's, he's had as he's become a part of our, of our community. Come on up, Carl. 
and ask you to tell me a little bit about your youth. And when I say about your youth, I also wanted you to talk about a little bit about who some of the influences on your life were and where, where that led you. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. My youth is pretty uh, straightforward in terms of me growing up in Racine. Uh, I got into trouble a lot, the usual stuff. Uh, but the way that my trouble was presented to my parents and presented to my community was different. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, I seem to be fast-tracked into delinquency status. And the community treats you different once you have a label on you. That's right. And so in terms of who, who were some of your early influences and how you were growing up, who would you say some of your early influencers were? Oh, absolutely. My, my dad, mm -hmm. my mom, uh, my, uh, my older sister, uh, my brothers who, uh, who still live in Chicago, mm -hmm. uh, my second grade teacher who wow. happened to uh, think, you know, that Valentine's Day was a big deal and I should think it's a big deal too. <laughs> uh, um, you know, my third grade teacher, my eighth grade teacher mm -hmm. who, who pushed me to make the honor roll. I mean, there are a few key people who just uh, labels aside mm -hmm. did the work that they were called to do, did the work that professionally they wow. were trained to do and that had a lasting effect long term. Even though I continued to be on a different path, I still took those lessons mm -hmm. that they gave me with me. So you had kind of two, if I could be so bold, you got two kind of different lessons and two tracks in those lessons going on in your head. You had teachers who were mentors to you and obviously helped to shape you into the person you are today, but you also took right. a fairly self-destructive path. Sure, and sure. How did the folks around you, uh, how were they an influence on how you chose that track? Uh, well, uh, initially, uh, negatively so. Um, I got into a lot of trouble as a young adult. I ended up going to prison for that. Um, I, uh, I spent 16 years in prison before I released uh, three years ago, which is when I met this fellow. Um, <laughs> I figured that all the destruction and the damage that I was doing was just me. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I didn't see how the investments that were made by the people who cared about me, uh, they felt that mm -hmm. when I didn't carry those investments well. They felt like that was their doing in the same way that Lars's big brother felt like his brother's situation was his fault. Mm -hmm. And he carried that heavy. And the, the ripple effect of uh, those who have invested in you, your community having invested in you, uh, the responsible part of it is to know that the community is looking for a return on that investment. <laughs> and they need you to place that return into mm -hmm. the community because there are those who are coming after you. So, you're in, you're in lockup uh -huh. in the Racine County Jail. Sure. And you, a lesson just hit you in the head. You saw something kind of remarkable happen right. in your lockup. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Uh, well, I, I went to, to the county jail and I sat there and I was definitely on my way. I was looking at at least a couple of hundred years in prison and it was a potentially a I was never coming home kind of scenario. So my mind was all over the place. Uh, I was in what they call the tank, which is uh, 10 to 12 guys all together at once. And we have to navigate that on our own. They don't help us do that. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it's tumultuous. Uh, mm -hmm. And the guy was just losing it and the deputy came to the window to talk to him and the guy just, I mean, he literally flips out 
on 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 the on the uh, on the chair, mm -hmm. and it was probably a two or three minute tirade. And the whole time, this deputy is just sitting there looking at the guy. And when the and we're all like, uh oh, they're about to run in here. They're about to gas this place. They're about to come and get this guy. And just out of nowhere, once he's done, the deputy kind of just you know gently tells him, uh, "I've heard you." Uh, I need a few minutes to take care of that, and I'll be right back. In a straightforward tone of voice, and then he kind of he walked off. Why and did Why did that surprise you? Because I had no idea that that was going to be the response that came, and it was shocking to me. And it it literally it forced my brain to slow down, and then stop. So you saw this professional behavior. You kind of expected that guys might blow in, you know, shock and awe and take care of this, but in a professional way, right. this person just was able to be himself. Indeed. And just Indeed. the situation resolved through his presence rather than his strong intervention. Oh, it absolutely did. And, it was, and, and, and from that, I carried this burning question of how did he do that? Why did he do that? <laughs> I have to get some answers about that. And so when the situation calmed down a bit later and the deputy came back, I talked to him and I simply asked him flat out, like, why did you handle that that way? And he said, look, I get it. This is a very stressful situation. And the guy was having a moment. That's not the most terrible thing in the world to let him have that. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't personal, so what he said about me and what he said about the situation, I didn't take personally. And I mm -hmm. thought, hmm, <laughs> I need to learn how to do that. <laughs> uh, I'm thinking where I'm going, I'm gonna need to not personalize a lot of non-personal situations. And I took that lesson pretty powerfully from him. And it turned out to be the kind of thing that you know already, but then when somebody kind of shows it to you, it, it, in effect, does rewire mm -hmm. how you know it and so, how you walk with what you know is a big deal. So, as, as it, it, you know, to kind of, again, say you, you have this opportunity, you see this, and you start to already learn there may be a different way to behave here or to respond to challenges that are around me, kind of in a more mature way, right. rather than right. aggression to aggression. Absolutely. You learn a new technique. Tell me about mentors. So now you're going to be sent to prison for a substantial amount of time. Uh-huh. Tell me about some of the early folks that you met and how they impacted, again, your understanding of who you were right. and where you were headed. Uh, well, there were certainly a lot, um, but there were, you know, my, my first roommate, um, he really walked me through what the process would be of being in prison for almost 20 years. Hmm. Uh, I ended up coming home early because of an early release program, because of uh, behavioral choices. Mm -hmm. uh, when that exists, that's a powerful thing. Um, but he helped me to get to that in the beginning. I told him who I was as a person and what I was interested in, and he just kind of walked me through it. Mm -hmm. He was a short-term guy. I was a very long-term guy. Uh, and he was a little older than me, and he kind of showed me the way on how to both navigate prison, how to navigate the programs in it, how to navigate mm -hmm. school in it. But it was really just a, a young guy who helped pull this nervousness out of this very young guy. Mm -hmm. and, and so, you know, what I'm trying to get at, too, is that, you know, the folks that you're 
uh, aligning yourselves with you to get in are people that you can aspire to be more like. Sure. And, and they're not the kind of people who led you into the trouble when you were a youth, but you're starting to see a different path and you're reaching out right. to people who can give you something either you don't have or you want more of. Right. Um, oh, oh, I absolutely agree. The, my, my thing was that this guy, and there were at least four others like it while I was in that particular prison in maximum mm -hmm. security, they all they invested in themselves and they were able to invest in others. And I saw that. And it was something about how they, you know, they filled up their cup or filled up their plate so that they had plenty mm -hmm. to give to others uh, without, you know, quid pro quo, without right. needing something in return, wanting something maybe, but not needing it. Mm -hmm. And that was powerful for me too. And that was, I mean, that fit in the adulthood category for mm -hmm. me. And as a young guy, I thought, yeah, I should be graduating into something else. <laughs> and perhaps this is what it can look like, circumstances aside. So, yeah, it was powerful to see. I really appreciate that. And uh, just out of curiosity, as we were talking about healthy shame messages, uh -huh. boy, I bet you had a share of those. Maybe a, even a share a, a of couple. unhealthy shame messages. Sure. A couple. Can you, can you talk about how some of those messages that may have hit your heart hard, right. something in you knew right. this was the right way to go? Well, I, probably the, the, the biggest uh, healthy shame messages that came into effect for me was the fact that I, I had two kids. I was a parent of two. I had a daughter who was a year old and a son who was still in the womb when I went to prison. And... I was devastated because the very things that I had told myself, because I was raised by my mother and stepfather, was that I was going to do better than my biological father had. Mm -hmm. And yet I still found myself in the exact same kind of position, and I didn't really know how I got there. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the community would call me on that sort of thing when I went to the fatherhood programs and stuff like that, but it was really just a matter of how do I be better and how mm -hmm. do I carry this feeling that I have in my heart that I can't be there. How do I still invest in spite of that? And there were, you know, there were things on TV, there were things in movies that came up a lot, but nothing like, uh, kind of like Lars in the Real Girl movie, uh, the movie with uh, Jim Carrey, the Liar Liar movie. It is one of the funniest movies ever if you haven't seen it. Uh, but the, the powerful moment in it is when he is, he becomes this ultimate truth teller and the world goes haywire around him because <laughs> of it. Uh, and he's talking to his, uh, his ex-wife and he's being pretty introspective and he says to himself first that I'm a bad father and then it, he says to her that he's a bad father and then it clicks. And then he says it again to himself like I'm a bad father and he internalizes it and all this stuff begins to change inside of him because it's almost like the train in his mind jumped the track. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, she tries to comfort him, but it's too late. He's already gone. <laughs> He's off on a tangent in his own mind. Uh, but the movie Lars and the Real Girl really sparked that moment in that movie for me mm -hmm. because I saw that and identified with that in the movie with Jim Carrey every, much as, every bit as much as I did in the Lars movie mm -hmm. as well. So they, those, those messages come up in society uh, society is not yet geared to do that for each other in the way that we say we should. Mm -hmm. You know, you and I are in, into reentry together, so we work in that category all the time. And society is just not set up to embrace people in the same way that we usher them away. And we should be. And that's part of our societal failing is that 
I'm not living my truths and living my values in the way I know I could. And people are watching me not do that and mimicking that. That's a huge point, and that's where I want to kind of bring this to a little bit of a conclusion. Now, now you're out, you're actually working, you, you not only have sought out mentors on the outside, but you have become a mentor to other sure. people. So you moved up this progression. By the how time, did that happen? By the, how did that happen? <laughs> by the time you left prison, you were teaching cognitive intervention programming, you were part of the system for making things right, and what you had learned, you were passing on, helping to shape other people around you. Right. You had become a gentle protector in your environment, and now, even now, outside, this has now become not only your role, but your job. Right. It's not only how it defines you. So anybody who would read, as they say, read his jacket, what is his list of crimes? What is the things that he's done? You would not recognize that and this. You would go, this does not go together. Right. You know, it's like Sesame Street. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> okay? And so not only is transformation possible, but transformation is part of what God does in our midst. It's part of what God does in our community. It's part of what he does in our own hearts. And it is absolutely necessary for functional community to be able to have pathways for people to find out who they are, even to help them define who they are. And I would say now, after reading Carl's jacket and knowing exactly what had gone on in his life prior, that there has been a massive transformation. And it came through mentoring, it came through a, a, a serious intent to reach higher than he was at any point where he's at. Every time Carl got an opportunity to do something, he reached a little higher. And so he did not, not only did he take the 10 or 12 programs that he was, had to take when that he went in. Right. He also, for the, uh, uh, many of the last years of his program, was teaching those programs driving that information down, sharing it with others, and matching it up with the information from his experience that most of his teachers didn't have. So, I mean, God has a place for all this. I always think about Paul's, uh, uh, Paul, the conversion of St. Paul, and how he's knocked off his horse, and he says to Ananias, there's a man coming named Paul. You heard me tell the story before. It's, it's a foundational scriptural story for me. And he says, uh, you know, go to, go to Damascus and, and wait for a man named Ananias to show up. And he says to Ananias, uh, there's a man named Paul who's on Straight Street. I want you to go. He goes, you mean the guy who's killing Christians, right? That guy? I'm going to go talk to him? What we see here now is, as a lesson here in front of us is somebody who took a life towards transformation. And what does it look like on the other side? I didn't know Carl before. I can't even imagine that kid who's shooting at police officers. This is so far out of my frame of reference of who he is that I can barely wrap my brain around it. Okay. This is what God does. And then he uses that, like St. Paul, to say, yes, you who murder Christians, I need you to go out and start churches. And he does. Not all of us have this dramatic of a transformation, but... Our lives are built on many transformations that happen. Carl, thank you very much for your time today. Really appreciate it. This model is played out in scripture all over. 
where Paul is working with people who become mentors. He says to Timothy, I'm sending you into this church. He said, do not be embarrassed that you're young. Stay strong to the words that you've been taught. I've mentored you into this. Do what you've been taught to do. Peter and John are, are talking about Jesus all through the book of Acts, and they keep getting arrested for it. And the magistrate looks at him and goes, why do you keep doing this? You're just simple men. And then they said, it's the scripture says they realized, oh, these are the guys that walked with Jesus. They were mentored. They didn't have great theological education. They loved God and God loved them and they found a way to be able to listen and they put themselves under the uh, tutorials of Jesus for three years, sitting in his midst, asking questions, seeing how life reacted, being corrected by Jesus when they told the children to go sit down. This is the sign of a healthy community. And this is what I pray for in the work that I do, that more and more Carls, more and more Endels, more and more Carloses, guys who are coming back from these tremendous experiences will change their lives dramatically and become leaders in their community. Carl has been the vice president of a statewide organization called Expo, which is actually uh, uh, challenging the, the constraints of uh, the prison system in a prison reform movement. Uh, he's currently the uh, uh, program director for a, something called the Hospitality Center where homeless and, and people of very few means come in to be fed every day and have some community. Uh, this is not the same person who went in the prison in, what year was that, 90? Yeah, yeah, 2000. So welcome back. <laughs> and please know that God is ready to speak to you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, and to rough out some of those, those, smooth out some of those rough edges that keep us from being who we are and that help us not to understand who we are. Jesus is here to heal that. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.